Okay, well, welcome to session number two. You survived session one, and that's a big deal. And then you were crazy enough to come back, which is an even bigger deal. So I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for coming back. Um, tonight's topic is a little touchy, I think, a little sensitive maybe for a lot of people. And so right away, I want to make sure we're all aware that this tonight is not a session about uh, denying racism in the world. That's not what this is about. Along with that, um, there are people that will listen to this talk who have experienced discrimination of one kind or another. Um, and so we want to be very sensitive to that tonight as well. That is certainly not uh, where we're going with this session. What we are doing tonight is we are going to assess a particular worldview that is outside of the context of Scripture. And we're going to try and understand where, whether it's true, if it's not true, where it's not true, and so on, and try and assess it that way. And of course, through all of this, as we've said uh, last week, we are seeking to train up Christian mercenaries, right? People that can be dropped behind enemy lines. We are. We're dropped behind enemy lines. The devil hates our guts. We know that. And he's out to get us. And we are face-to-face -face with a world of people that hate the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're lost and they need him. The very thing they hate, they need. And we have been called, what a privilege, we've been called to be his messengers, to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. So that's what we're doing. That's the whole focus of this. We're not here to study certain theories and get lots of head knowledge so that we can have intellectual talks with our co-workers. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to equip ourselves to go into the world to seek those who are lost and find them for Christ and bring them to Christ, introduce them to Christ. And we can only do that when we speak the gospel into the context of our culture. So that's where we're headed tonight. We need prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we're thankful again that you are over all of history and that none of it is outside of your sovereign control. Every single detail has been designed to bring you the greatest amount of glory. Even through the brokenness of our world and through the tragedies and through the sadness and through all of the, the hatred and all of our sin through it all because of the cross of Jesus Christ and because of his resurrection and because of everything that he is fulfilling and accomplishing because of what he has done. Lord, we know that you get all the glory as a result of it. And we just want to praise you for that tonight. So help us to move into this topic tonight with humility, with uh, sensitivity, and with a sense of soberness as we talk about some deep and some very dark issues. We ask, Lord, to open our hearts to receive your word. 
Help us not to stray from your word, but to stick close to the text, because we know that it is your word that speaks into us and is the power to transform us. So Lord, transform us tonight. We ask again for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to say last week we did not get a break halfway through. I'm kind of sorry about that. It happened, and, uh, but tonight we're going to try and... There. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> Thank you. Keep me accountable. This is good. I'm going to try tonight anyways, but if I don't, I'm not going to apologize. Thank you. Here we go. All right, let's get into it. Let's get to work. Last week, just by way of review, some of you were not here last week. Uh, these are online, by the way, on the Harvest website. I did send out an email with the link. I'll send out another one this week, if all goes well, with the link again. And in the details section of the video on the website, there is a, a link for the handout as well. So you can print that out and follow along. But if you were not here last week, and if you did not watch the video to this point, we are seeking to train disciples to do three things in a culture that is increasingly becoming oppressive. We are seeking to train people, disciples, to be able to engage culture with gospel wisdom. So strike up conversations and be able to navigate those conversations with wisdom in how to evangelize or how to infuse the good news of Jesus Christ into that conversation. Secondly, we're looking to train disciples to survive culture with gospel perseverance. There is a sense of survivalist mentality that I've noticed with many of us. We're talking about how we're going to survive culture and what's going on right now with vaccine passports. It seems to be coming closer and closer and pressing in on us. And public schools are becoming more oppressive as well and so on. So we need to learn how to survive culture with gospel perseverance, not cave to the culture. And thirdly, we need to learn how to confront culture with gospel courage. In, either, in other words, speak truth to lies and speak truth to power. Last week, we also looked at the importance of having an accurate worldview and of being able to discern opposing worldviews. We looked at cultural Marxism last week, uh, which is throughout almost every institution in Western culture today. A lot of what we're dealing with at this point comes from that. And we looked as well at how to engage cultural worldviews with the gospel. So here's a question for you tonight. Why do you think Marxism is so attractive? I mean, do you think that Stalin or Lenin, I guess it was Lenin first, or Chairman Mao just showed up one day and said, hey, hey guys, I'm Chairman Mao. I want to correct all the problems in the world. And um, basically it's going to cost 65 million of you your lives. So vote for me. You think that's how it worked? That's not how it worked. Hitler didn't do that either. Hitler wasn't a Marxist. He was a fascist. But he didn't do that either. He didn't show up one day and say, hey guys, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create this thing called a Holocaust. Do you know what that is? He didn't sell it that way. What they do, like most politicians, they cloak it 
right? They put it inside, they dress it up somehow, what they're selling. So Lenin came along and he promised the people famously, peace, bread, and land. Well, everybody wants that, especially in Russia where some of that was kind of scarce at the time, right? And Lenin comes along and says, I'm going to give you three things you desperately need. Hugo Chavez in Venezuela promised free health care. Sounds familiar. Didn't work out. Mao promised freedom of expression. This one's actually, it would be humorous if it wasn't so deadly, but he promised that flowers can bloom. Basically what he meant was anyone can be free to give their opposing view to the government. The problem was so many people started giving their opposing views to the government that Chairman Mao started just executing them all. And eventually he bragged about it and said, actually he did that in the first place to draw the snakes out of the grass. So what are they doing? They're cloaking what they want in a way that looks attractive to the people. And they're using terms. Here's a big term that they love to use to sell it. Justice. That's what Marx wanted in the beginning, right? He wanted justice for the proletariats that were working so hard in the factories and were being so abused by those industrial capitalists. He wanted justice for those people. And that justice would come by way of a revolution. And eventually, all the world would be happy because the capitalists would be gone. But again, it started with the word justice. Everyone wants justice. And revolution sounds very, very attractive to people that want justice because we do live in a world that lacks justice, doesn't it? It's not perfect. It's never been perfect. And it won't be perfect until Jesus comes back. We know that, but that's how it's cloaked. Here's the problem. What happened to truth? Well, what happened to truth? And first, in Romans 1, very clearly say, what, what does truth have to do with any of this? Justice requires truth, or it's not justice. In fact, justice without truth would be injustice. True? True. Now look at this, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's the, here's the phrase we want to pick tonight. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's exactly what's going on in our world today. Truth is optional. Truth is only when it is convenient. They suppress the truth. Interesting term. Let's keep reading for a moment. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So they can look around, they can see reality, they can see everything that's out there. They're, they have no excuse for suppressing the truth and denying God. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Notice, they didn't just do away with the image of the immortal God, they exchanged it. Because human beings cannot be without religion. You can't be. You worship something, right? So Paul makes it very clear. They didn't 
destroy it or annihilate it, they exchanged it for a different type of religion, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Notice how it goes down, 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 from mortal man to birds to animals to creeping things, constantly being degraded. Okay, the word suppress, the Greek word kartecho, is to hold down. It's like big brother pinning little brother to the ground, right? Now, he can't kill little brother, even though he wants to, because he can't get away with it. Unless his name is Cain, I guess he didn't get away with it either. But big brother is pinning little brother to the ground because little brother is saying, I'm telling mom, right? And big brother doesn't want the truth to come out from little brother. So he's suppressing him. He's holding him down. That's the picture that Paul is giving. I'm not sure that's the picture Paul had in mind that he was thinking about at the time, but that's the idea of that word. It means to hold something down, to suppress it. Now think about this for a moment. Why do people suppress the truth and not destroy it? Okay, we're going to spend the first half of our time here tonight talking about truth because justice without truth is not justice. Why do you think they suppress it? They, they don't destroy it. Well, they don't destroy it because you can't destroy truth. We're going to look at that a little further on, but that should give us a great deal of confidence tonight to live by the truth. It ought to. They can suppress it, but eventually, little brother's getting off that ground and he's going to speak some truth. That's eventually what's going to happen. So, whatever happened to the truth? Well, first of all, we need to define truth. And truth is, uh, there have been many definitions given throughout uh, history, especially in Western history. But the, the definition we're going with is what is called the correspondence definition. That truth is that which corresponds to reality. It corresponds to reality. So it mu- it, it's saying it like it is, right? This is very important. Truth is not relative. In fact, if you're talking to your buddy and your buddy tries to tell you that truth is relative and it's your truth or it's my truth and my truth can be different than your truth and that's okay, you might want to ask him, is that absolutely true? I don't know, at some point, they don't want truth to be relative. They can't get around it. Why? Because it's reality. It's just reality. Truth is not relative. There are relative things in the world. We're not denying that. But truth is absolute. It corresponds to reality. You can't deny gravity. You can't deny biology. You can try. You can try to suppress it. But over time it's going to get back up again because suppressing the truth only hurts us. So listen to this. Reality is your friend. Reality is your friend as a Christian. Don't ever lose sight of that. It's one reason why uh, you should always look to use when you're talking to other individuals, use illustrations from reality to help uh, support the truth that you're trying to convey. Reality is your friend, points to the truth. If you observe it, seek it, learn from it, you will avoid self-destruction. You will avoid soul destruction. So illustrations from nature or the real world are so effective with people because people can look at them and say, yeah, that makes sense. Never thought of that before. 
All right, so we're going to get into what did happen to the truth. And I think uh, right away, we need to go right back to Genesis 3 and find out what did Satan do? He hates truth right from the beginning. If he can mislead us and get us to destroy our souls by suppressing truth, that's exactly what he's after. And our culture is just a reflection of that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a number, we're going to look into Genesis 3 right now and see four different ways in Genesis 3 that truth was suppressed as the serpent engages in a conversation with Eve and then eventually Adam and Eve are involved in the story. But verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Compare this to what God actually said. Because back in chapter 2 of Genesis, God said this in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, okay, remember? So the serpent said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But God had said in chapter 2, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sounds like a good God trying to keep people safe that he loves. That's what it sounds like, but Satan turned it. What did he do? Well, here's the first step. It's called distortion, right? So he changed the emphasis. He changed the emphasis to create a new implication, Okay, so it's kind of the same message, just a slightly different emphasis to it. So what does the serpent do? He focuses on the one tree that God said, you cannot eat of this tree. And immediately, his first question to Eve is, did God say there was any tree in the garden that you can't eat from? What's the implication? God's not as good as you think. Our culture does the very same thing over and over again. Distortion changes the emphasis, changes the implication. So the Christian version of God, well, they, they don't want to focus, or some are going to try and twist it into God is all loving and ever judging. But the implication of culture is your Christian God is a God who is very judgmental. I had a coworker um, that I was very fond of, Got along with him very well. Actually, he worked on my team for a little while. And uh, we would have uh, meetings together and discuss different things. And at times, he would just open up about his personal life and what was going on. And I still remember talking to him one day and saying to him, you know, I, I just wonder, have you ever considered faith as, a, as an alternate way to look at your situation in life? And his immediate response to me was to say, I got a question for you. Now, this is a guy who had been treated really well by Christians. His house had, his parents' house had burned down when he was a kid, everything in it. His dad had been injured as a result of jumping out a window and so on. And, um, and some Christians took them in. He was telling me the whole story about how a, a particular church not too far from here actually took care of his family and got them back on their feet again. That's a great testimony to have as a, as a Christian church, as a group of Christians, as a body of Christ. Um, but his first question to me was, he said, I got a question for you. 
does God judge me? Immediately. Where did he get that? You get the distortion going on in his head? Doesn't matter how much I tell him, God loves you. God loves you. So, well, I was happy to oblige and let him know, you know, the most freeing thing in the world that happened to me was the day I realized that God judged me and he was right. And you know what he did? He loved me so much, he put all that judgment on his son Jesus, and now I go free, and I've got nothing left to hide. I've got nothing left to prove. I don't have to hide in front of you anymore, right? But you can see the cultural implication, the distortion. It's in their minds. God's a judging God. God's a judging God. God's a judging God. Is it true? Yes. Absolutely, it's true. He's a righteous God. He hates sin. He loves beauty. He's perfect. But they don't look at it that way, right? We scamper away. Why? Because the culture has distorted it. Satan has distorted the message, the good news, to be all about the fact that he's just out to get you. That's all he's out to do. So that's number one. All right, let's move on. On the second one, verse two and three, the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I go back to Genesis 2 and read it again. I don't see anywhere in there it says anything about touching the tree. Nowhere. So what is this? She modified the truth. She modified it. She added to it. Well, you could modify by subtracting from it as well. Right? Just leaving out details or adding details. This is kind of like the so-called Christian clergy today trying to make a biblical defense for gay marriage. It's not in the Bible. In fact, you can try and modify it and try and say, well, you know, make a case of some kind and start twisting words. But the theme throughout the entire Bible is about a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. It's everywhere. So we can't subtract from the Bible. We can't add to the Bible. It's God's word. It's true. We can't modify it. And that's the second one. Here's the third one. Verse four, the serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is this? This is outright denial. All right, so we've gone from distortion to modification to outright denial. What is denial? Well, first of all, he calls the truth a lie, right? You shall not surely die. Then he replaces the truth with a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And third, he dresses the lie as more attractive than the truth. That's our culture today, isn't it? It's not hard to see. Just turn on the TV, watch some ads, and you'll see how the lie is dressed up to look more attractive than the truth, more colorful. And apparently today, you can choose your gender, and that's supposedly really good news. Men can become pregnant. I'm not sure women always want to be pregnant. From what I understand, you can love who you want. Huh? 
Okay, you get the idea, right? Changing to a lie and then dressing the lie as more attractive than the truth when the truth is your gender is who God wants you to be, who he chose for you. God made women to be able to carry children and it's a beautiful thing. He's the creator and he did that as part of what reflects his glory. And you can't just love who you want. That's not love. I can guarantee you people who say you can love who you want. I know some very, some very well-meaning parents that I've heard say that who have little children. And I want to say if I had the chance, I don't think you believe that. Because I have a feeling if your little girl came home with a 40-year-old man and said, I'm in love with him, I'm pretty sure you'd have a problem with that. But you're saying you can love who you want. You might want to rethink it. But again, the lie is dressed up to look more attractive than the truth. And here's the last one, influence. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Did you notice that? She also gave some to her husband. I have no idea what he was thinking. Well, I guess maybe most of us husbands know what he was thinking, right? I'm kidding, okay, I'm kidding. You get the idea? There was a little bit of influence going on. Adam may not have been so convinced. I don't know. Maybe he was the one who got the direct command from God, you shall not eat of it. The day you do, you will die. He may not have been so convinced, but he went along with it. Maybe due to the consequences of refusing to. Now, I know the marriage jokes can cue right now, but... That's not where we're going with this. I I want you to notice the parallel again to the cultural reality around us. This is the definition of totalitarianism. You do as I say. Well, I, I I don't really see it your way. Doesn't matter. Do it anyways. It's like George Orwell in 1984, which is becoming more and more a reality for us today, Uh, the great line that freedom is the freedom to say two and two makes four. Totalitarianism says, you you cut that out, two and two makes five. How do you know that? Doesn't matter, I said so. Everyone must accept the same moral standards. Everyone must think the same way. And you will be scored on this. It's what the social credit system is all about in China right now. That Prime Minister Trudeau seems to be a very big fan of, thinking that this will produce a new system of utopian harmony here in Canada. That's where we're at. That's what's going on with truth. Do you notice how, can I stop right here and just, again, try and just, Note the fact that the Bible is a witness to reality. I mean, you go right back to Genesis 3 and you see it hasn't changed. Same thing's happening today that was going on with a serpent and two human beings in the garden in the first place. It's one of the reasons among many that uh, I, I look at the word of God as the word of God. 
Among others, I am more convinced than ever that as I study this book, I realize this book spells out reality like nothing else. It is a witness to the truth. There are many reasons we believe it's God's word, but that's one of them. And the more we use it with individuals to say, you know what, I know a section of the Bible that actually kind of speaks into what you're talking about. The more we can demonstrate that, the more others realize this is not some ancient book. This is a living book. It's God's word and it's powerful and it's still relevant for us today. All right. So what are the benefits of truth? We're going to go through this uh, uh, we're going to get through the, the truth part. We might start into the critical race part, critical social, so, social justice part, uh, before we take a little bit of a break. But here we go. Benefits of truth. Number one, truth makes us ready, ready for conversations, ready to speak to others, ready for confrontation. It frees us up, doesn't it? We can relax a little bit when we have the truth on our side. If someone's trying to convince you that biology isn't biology or something else that you can see all around you is just not true. For instance, if someone tries to tell you that the entire world is here by accident, just as a, a, a result of random chaos over millions of years. Listen, I used to work in a technology department. I used to work in a place where everything was designed. Everything, down to the finest detail. Most of you, if not all of you tonight, drove here in automobiles. Do you know the level of design that has to go into every little microchip and every detail of that vehicle? Some of you do, because many of us work in the, or many of you work in the automotive industry, and you know that to be the case. Maybe you've walked through some of these uh, car plants, and you've seen just the intricacy of what's going on. I remember one day I was sitting, watching, my, my boss was showing me a, um, a video, maybe you've seen it, of this robot, you know, they're training them to be soldiers and things, and it was like jumping and doing flips and all this stuff. And we're watching this together, and he's just talking, like, this is phenomenal, you know? And, and of course, we worked with robots, too, very different robots, not like that. And uh, just said, see, that's why I'm not an atheist. And he said, what? That's why I'm not an atheist. Why is that? He said, because you can't tell me that that happened from an explosion in a factory or from some, some result of random chaos. That had to be designed. You and I have to be designed. I think he was a little bit stunned, but it's true. It's true. You can't look around you at reality and think that this all happened by accident and then go about the rest of your life assuming everything else in the world is designed. I love it when you go to the zoo and they're trying to tell you how things happen over millions of years in a zoo that was designed by someone. You're driving around in these trolleys that were designed by someone. They're trying to tell you that everything else, the most amazing things in the zoo, that everyone's there to see were not designed. It's not reality. So it frees you. It makes you ready for conversation. Secondly, and we're talking, you don't have to be an expert of this. <laughs> you just have to be a human being with a brain, right? You just got to be someone thinking and assuming other people around you are thinking too. You say, come on, do you really believe that? Do you really, really believe that's true? Secondly, it gives us confidence. We don't have to be professionals. 
This is why Ephesians 6, last week we looked at the armor of God. What does it start with? It starts with the belt of truth, right? The belt of truth. What does the belt do? What did it do for the Roman soldiers? It allowed them to bind up their garments so they could actually fight without getting tangled up in all of their garments. That's what it did. It gave them confidence. It made them ready. And lastly, truth guarantees effectiveness because it's true. We're going to notice that in a minute, but what is our response to it? Our response to it is, first of all, to know the truth. By the way, that means knowing the truth about yourself. This is why you can't be a Christian without repentance. Okay, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind. Because you see, if I, it, the way I naturally view myself, I have a naturally inflated view of myself, and so do you. And if you deny that, you're denying the truth. <laughs> Just letting you know. But I have a naturally inflated view of myself. I kind of see myself as, you know, I can justify things for myself. I can excuse things for myself. Really quick to do that. And yet, I may not be so quick to excuse things with you or to allow you to justify yourself and so on. You get where I'm going with this? So repentance, what does it do? It brings you to a knowledge of the truth about yourself and about God. I'm wrong. God's right. Right? It humbles us. It brings us down to where we need to be. We, become, we come toe-to-toe with the truth, and we lose every time. So when I come to the truth about myself and about selfishness in my heart, you know, as either a husband or as a father, and I see how my self-interest just kind of plays out in my home life, and God brings it right in front of me. I go, whoa, where did this come from? It's a good dose of truth, and when I know it, when I know it about myself, it leads to freedom. That's why Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we need to know it. Not just truth about cultural Marxism or critical social justice or any of these things, but truth about ourselves. That's probably the most effective thing for people around you. It is so unnerving to be around someone who has nothing left to prove because Jesus outed them at the cross. Nothing left to prove. If the God of the universe had to come and die for me because I was such a train wreck and nothing else could fix it, I could not fix myself, right? I've got nothing left to prove. And that's the truth. And when you live like that at your job, I used to work at a place where they fought over parking spaces, right? Because those had some kind of uh, status attached to the parking space, right? <laughs> You know, that, that kind of thing going, that's, that's the world that we live in. That's where we're at. But when you have nothing left to prove, it's all unnerving to people. They look at you and say, what's, what's different about you? Something's different about you. Not only that, we submit to it. We know it. We submit to it. It's true. So whatever I'm believing that disagrees with the truth is wrong. Truth is right. I'm wrong. We submit to it. It frees us. It liberates us. It brings tremendous peace when we stop making excuses. It brings us great peace to see the world as God sees the world. We submit to it. We stand for it. We don't bend. We stand for what's true. Next week, we're going to look at cancel culture, but we stand for what's true. They might cancel us. They might try to cancel us. 
They tried to cancel Jesus, but just like truth, they can suppress it. They can't destroy it. So we're going to look at that next week. We stand for it, no matter what. And fourth, we live it out. We live the truth in everyday life. We're willing to acknowledge it. We're willing to be confronted by it. We live it out. In other words, we live as though it's true. All right, well, there is good news. And I want to encourage us with this uh, as we stand for the truth in a world that is filled with lies. As we stand for the truth, it will always win. If we surrender to it, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth, as opposed to false truth, we have every reason to run into the darkness rather than run from it. That's why, again, you're at the dinner table with your kids. There should be no topics of conversation that are taboo or off-limits. Nor should there ever be the answer, I'm your dad and I said so. There might be the answer, you know what, son? I really don't know. I've never really thought about that before, but you know what? We should probably look at it together. Why would we answer that way? Because it's true. I don't know. But I want to know. I'm glad you asked. So let's look into it together because, well, truth is truth. Can't be destroyed. And if I want to teach my kids over time, over a life, lifetime, if I want to teach them that the truth always wins, then I can't be afraid. I can't be afraid to look for answers. So what I want to do is give a little illustration of this. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is found in 1 Kings 18. And it's just a great example of what happens when the truth is on our side. It's the story of Ahab and Elijah. And there has been a famine in the land for three years at this point. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel are some of the most wicked people that have ruled Israel in Israel's history. And uh, when Ahab sees Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he says to him, he takes the moral high ground very quickly, which all dictators do. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And uh, Elijah answers and says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, and by the way, okay, so you have two people going at it saying, basically, it's your fault. And the other one's saying, no, no, it's your fault. Well, how are we going to know what's true? Well, Elijah has a solution for this. He says, now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And by the way, the picture in the background up there is Mount Carmel. And uh, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table, right? So now there are two things that come out of this story. Many of you probably know this story, but I'm not going to assume all of you know the story. But they gather all the people of Israel up onto Mount Carmel, which is where the gods were often worshipped. So we're going right into the belly of the beast, right? We're going right into where the gods were worshipped at the time on the mountaintops and so on. And they gather all the people around and what they're going to do, they have rules to this, this showdown. And what they're going to do is they're going to build two altars 
And the 850 prophets of these false gods are gonna set up their altar. They're gonna put the animal sacrifice on top, but they're not gonna light it on fire. And then eventually Elijah's gonna do the same with his animal on an altar and he's not gonna light it on fire. And the God that consumes the sacrifice is the true God. In other words, truth will be reflected by reality. You get it? This is what's gonna happen. Well, I think the prophets, the 850 prophets of Baal, they teach us something. They teach us you cannot manufacture truth. You can't make your own truth. You can try. Like remember Oprah saying to uh, Meghan Markle when she was talking about how racist the royal family was, this is your truth. In other words, we can't refute it. We can't deny it. We must agree with it. We must bow to it because you said it. It's your truth, Right? Well, 850 prophets are all screaming at the top of their lungs from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. There was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Seems like a fitting time to mock these idol worshipers saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Another, why is he mocking? Because it's clear that they're denying reality. And at that point, you have to point it out, and it's hard not to point it out without mocking, right? It's hard not to point out, um, I don't think guys can get pregnant without somehow thinking, this is, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be humorous. It's sad, though. It's really sad. But Elijah is mocking and saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. In other words, what kind of a god is this? And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Well, it's pretty clear. The majority doesn't make it true. You got 850 on one. Okay, so, well, the rest of the country believes it. It must be true. The rest of the nation believes it. It's on the TV every night. It must be true. Social media has it all over the place, must be true. Netflix, every movie that I've seen seems to be saying the same thing, it must be true. No, you still can't manufacture truth because truth is what it is. Words don't make it true. They're just yelling and chanting and repeating the same words over and over again. Baal, hear us, hear us, please hear us. It's not working. Maybe if we say it in a different way, that'll make it work. Maybe if we present it with different words or a different sentence or maybe with a different voice tone, maybe that will work. And actions don't make it true. They're cutting themselves with knives. I mean, the, the longer it went on, the crazier it looked. And you can see Elijah's finally saying, guys, okay, move over before you hurt yourselves. I think it was a little bit late. But uh, at some point, he, sa he says to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Now, I want you to notice the simplicity of what Elijah did in response with his altar. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain 
two seahs of seed, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water. Sorry, did I read that again? Water? I thought we were dealing with fire here. I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, Elijah, water is not a great idea for what you're trying to accomplish here. But he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Doesn't seem like a great idea, but I'm glad that's over. Uh, and then he said, do it a, a second time. And they did it a second time. And he, he said, do it a, th- a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the same time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, okay, so you, you see it's set up. Everything's just drenched with water. And uh, Elijah came near and he said, and this is very simple, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That took all of maybe 15 seconds to say. A little bit different than being... Nine o'clock in the morning till noon, screaming, cutting ourselves with knives. And Elijah just comes along, douses his altar with water and just says, Lord, show him who you are. And fire came down, consumed it all, licked up the water. There was nothing left of the altar of anything that he had set up. It was gone. Now, what do you think the people did? Well, the people fell down and said, Yahweh, he is God. Why? Because it's true. Why? Because it reflects reality. Okay, so what do we learn from this? Well, we learn not only can you not manufacture it, you also cannot destroy truth. This should give us a great deal of confidence. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, living in a world that is trying to suppress the truth and therefore trying to suppress you, it gives us confidence to know that no matter what happens to us, they cannot destroy the truth. That means we are on the winning side. Folks, we should be encouraged by that tonight. As we move into the subject of critical social justice, Uh, which we're going to do in a couple seconds here. But as we do, we need to recognize truth is what reflects reality and truth leads to freedom, great freedom. That's what we want for our world. That's what we want for our neighbors, people around us who are lost in all the chaos of the messages that are going on. That's where we're at. Now, justice. We're going to be looking at justice tonight because Cultural Marxists, they paint everything in terms of justice. But you can't have justice without truth. We're going to see how they've twisted the truth, how they've made it palatable, not just for unbelievers, but folks, this is a real danger for the church of Jesus Christ as well. And we're going to see that. We're going to demonstrate that tonight uh, a little bit. So, uh, Before we get into it, I'll give a little bit of background to the formation and existence of what is known as critical theory, critical social justice, and today, of course, we know it as critical 
race theory. That's the big name that is used, but we're going to use critical social justice kind of interchangeably with it as well. But uh, the Frankfurt School that we talked about last week, uh, the guys that had started that school, they, they combined Marx's idea of conflict, right, and oppression with Gramsci's ideas of hegemony or dominion. In other words, there are these power systems that are set up to keep certain people in power and other people oppressed. And that's really their worldview. That's what sums up how the world works for the cultural Marxists. They combined this with philosophy, with social science, sciences, and they reimagined, they reimagined different groups, different conflicting groups. And they reimagined the groups that they were defending so Karl Marx in the beginning was defending the laborer, the common laborer. The problem was the common laborer was thriving in, in, in a free market society. They were actually becoming wealthier as a result of a free market society. They really didn't want Marx's help. So it didn't work. In fact, it only worked in places that were not a free market society like China and Russia and so on. Didn't work there. So the Frankfurt School decided we got to go back to the drawing board and decide who we're dealing with. And, and if we're going to sell this, we need to find a group that's really oppressed. And they've come up with a number of them. And so you'll notice in our culture today, everything is about opposition and conflict. Everything is, is in these binary categories, you know, like uh, male versus female or um, um, gay versus straight, white versus black, and so on. They're, they're, there's a whole list of these types of categories. This is what the Frankfurt School was coming up with, and they started up what are known as critical theories, critical studies. And they were, of course, eventually they moved to the United States during World War II. They were kicked out of Germany. They were fleeing from the, the fascism of uh, the Nazis. And they came into the schools and into Hollywood, and they infiltrated with these beliefs. We kind of dealt with that last week. 1989, we talked about this last week as well, was the year that the Berlin Wall came down in East Germany. And everyone thought, this is the death of communism. This is the death of Marxism. Well, it wasn't true. Because the very same year, okay, 1989, key year here, Harvard law professor Derek Bell holds a conference in Wisconsin where critical race theory is officially born. So Derek Bell was one of the, the, the founders of critical race theory. The same year, another professor by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw, I'm going to show you a diagram of hers in a little while, introduced the idea of intersectionality. And she uh, introduced it through one of her uh, papers that she had written, uh, and intersectionality we'll look at, we'll, we'll define that in a little bit. But remember that word, intersectionality. Maybe some of you have heard it already. Maybe some of you have heard it and you don't know what it is. Believe me, if there are high school kids in the room who are going to public high school, you've probably heard it and you probably do know what it is because your teachers are letting you know what it is, making good and sure that you know what it is. Uh, Peggy McIntosh, the same year, 1989 still, Peggy McIntosh wrote another, uh, I believe it was a book, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. That's going to be key. Keep that in mind, Peggy McIntosh. We're going to watch a video in a little bit that's actually going to go into that. 
America, and so the same year, Harvard professors Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen, they wrote another book, After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. All right, so what's the point? 1989, Berlin Wall comes down, Marxism is dead, everyone thinks this is wonderful, is the same year critical race theory is coming alive. And, uh, and obviously the, the cultural Marxists were alive and well. They just kind of redirected, and we're seeing the fruit of that today. So defining critical social justice very quickly, I'm just going to give you a brief overview on it, and then we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of how the truth has been twisted, and it's no longer a system of truthful justice or true justice, but it is a justice that is being sold on a foundation of falsehood. The term critical implies revolution rather than reform. It is critical in the most negative sense of that term. We noticed that last week. It's not critical in the sense of positive criticism, like a coach after a game saying, hey, if you just lifted that slap shot about three inches, that puck would have been in. Okay, coach, I'll do that next time. That's not the kind of criticism we're talking about. We're talking about criticism that is meant to dismantle Western society. And by Western society, we're talking about a society that's founded on Christian principles. That's what it's there for. And all of the critical studies, there are many of them, this is only one aspect of them, are all there mainly just to criticize the institutions and bring them to the ground. The word theory implies more than just, hmm, I wonder if this is possible. The word theory is actually an all-encompassing worldview. They believe this. This is doctrine. This is theology to them. Objective truth is denied. That's going to become very clear as we go into some of the terms that they use. Objective truth is denied. Uh, a couple of these individuals have written and said, an approach based on uh, critical theory calls into question the delight, the idea, pardon me, that objectivity is desirable or even possible. So critical theory calls into question the idea that objectivity is desirable or even possible. Another, uh, another point to make about critical social justice, the assumption is that racism is everywhere. It's not just in pockets. It's not just in specific areas. It is in every aspect of Western society. It is everywhere. Racism is ordinary. Say Delgado and Stefancic, who have written a book called Critical Race Theory, kind of a manual on it. Racism is ordinary not aberrational, normal science, the usual way society does business, the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. That sounds like absolute truth. I wonder if it is absolutely true. I wonder if it is the reality that all people of color would say in this country, of course, they're talking about the United States, we can talk about Canada, we can talk about Western society as a whole. Another assumption is that whites are incapable of truth and righteousness. That's going to come out. That is uh, a, a pretty big um, assertion on their part. Again, Delgado and Stefancic say uh, they do not believe that they think and reason from a white viewpoint, but from a universally valid one, the truth. In other words, 
they believe that they know absolute truth, what everyone knows. So in other words, they can't reason well because they're blinded. We'll see that as we move on. Uh, experiential knowledge is central in this uh, critical theory as well. So the experience of people, we're going to see a term that comes up over and over again about storytelling. Storytelling comes up, it's subjective, experiential knowledge. Scripture is clear about not trusting experience. Personal experience is often used as irrefutable evidence of truth, isn't it? You ever tried to argue with someone who tells you, well, God told me so? That's a really hard person to have any kind of dialogue with. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure what you're doing is going to destroy, is going to destroy your family. Yeah, but God told me to do it. Hmm. Yeah, did he tell you in his word? Did he tell you in his mind? Or in your mind? How did that work? Because how do you know that it was God and not your mind? Like, where, where do you tell the difference, right? So again, this experiential knowledge is amplified in this theory. And finally, history is reinterpreted through the lens of racism. History is reinterpreted through the lens of racism. And uh, we'll notice that as well, how history is being altered. Rod Dreher said, Every, everything about modern society is designed to make memory, historical, social, and cultural memory hard to cultivate. Actual historical memory.